Next slide. Pursuit of biblical manhood. Had a great time yesterday. Uh, so just putting it on the schedule for you. I've done not a good job of reminding the men. So next, uh, third Saturday of each month is how that works. Starts at 8.30. Next one. Marriage tune-up, August 7th, 8.30 to 11.30. I'm calling it a tune-up. Um, just, right? <laughs> Sometimes you got to change the oil, right? <laughs> Need some fresh. Yeah, <laughs> right. So that's, we're putting that on the calendar uh, well in advance, uh, Saturday. And then in September, our next Think Together which, if you're not familiar, it's uh, just a format, kind of a town hall format. So one of the leadership, myself, Andrew, or Andy, will bring some content, and then we discuss that. And it's usually something related to how does the, the Christianity intersect with issues of the day. So we're going to do one on gender, which is actually part two. We've done our previous thing together was on gender. Uh, and we'll do that again. So that's September 11, uh, 8.30 to 11.30. All right, so those are just advance notice on that. All right, thank you. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. Colossians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And uh, the theme of Colossians, I will restate every time I preach, so that it's embedded in our minds. The theme of Colossians is the glory of Christ. It's the glory of Christ. That is the theme. That's really Paul's purpose, and it comes out really clearly in the first two chapters, especially chapter 3 in classic Paul format. He goes from theory or th uh, theology or doctrine to application. Right? Paul was like, you need to live your Christian life based on the truth that Jesus is supreme. Supreme. He is the head, the creator, the redeemer, uh, the sustainer, the reconciler. He's all things uh, to the church. So that's the theme of Colossians. And the reason Paul is writing this way to this, by the way, very small church. Uh, Colossae is the smallest city that Paul ever wrote a letter to. It was certainly not Rome, <laughs> and it certainly wasn't Corinth or Ephesus or uh, any of these other, you know, the church in Philippi, right? Colossae was just part of this little three cities that uh, existed in the Lycus Valley, uh, central Turkey, and of the three, uh, you might know, be more familiar with Laodicea. They are unfortunately famous for being lukewarm. Uh, the Lord's own judgment of them there in Revelation. But they were a neighboring city to Colossae. Uh, so it's right interesting to me, and I just as a, as a point of exhortation, that Paul's words about Jesus in chapter 1 are the most, the highest, the most exalting language perhaps anywhere in the Bible. And he wrote those words not to Rome, not to Corinth or Ephesus or the church in Philippi, but to the small little group of believers over in Colossae. 
Because God is not a respecter of persons. Big, little, small, whatever. He's like, here it is, you need to hear this. And the reason they needed to hear it is because they were being... mm, There was some doctrines, that there were some theories, there were... How do I want to say this? There was um, philosophy of life, right? The big questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? And there were philosophers who had a lot of money and great influence and were very impressive in the way that they presented their arguments. Very impressive in the way they presented their arguments. And Paul catches wind of this. And so what he does really beautifully is he says, okay, rather than me write a letter and just point by point refute everything that they're saying, I'm going to draw your attention to the glory of Christ so that you will see him and how beautiful he is. And you'll, and you'll stay in the faith. Okay, so that's the approach that Paul takes. We come to chapter 2 and it gets a little bit more personal. But before I jump into the text, let me just show you a picture here on the screen. Um, You can dim the lights there a little bit. I'm just using this as an illustration. Anybody know what that is? Can you see it? Maybe hit the lights, Oz. It's it's kind of... Yeah! (laughs) That's exactly, Sam's like, that's where the gold is. That is Fort Knox, uh, near Fort Knox Army Base in Kentucky. Okay, Um, here's a few fun facts about that place, Fort Knox. Uh, It it is a fortified vault building built in 1936 near Fort Knox, Kentucky. The reason for this obscure location out here in the middle of nowhere is it was part of a strategy to move our gold reserves away from the coastal cities to areas less vulnerable to foreign military attack. During World War II, as a matter of fact, the signed original Constitution of the United States, Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, Lincoln's second inaugural address, and drafts of Lincoln's Gettysburg address were stored in the vault for protection here in Kentucky. The depository is a secure facility. Check this out. Between its fenced perimeter and granite-lined concrete structure lie rings of razor wire and minefields. (laughs) The grounds are monitored by high-resolution night vision video cameras and microphones. The subterranean vault is made of steel plates, I-beams, and cylinders encased in concrete. Its torch and drill-resistant door is 21 inches thick and weighs 20 tons. A 20-ton door. The vault door is set on a 100-hour time lock and can only be opened by members of the depository staff who must dial separate combinations. It is so secure that the term as safe as Fort Knox has become a metaphor for safety and security. It currently holds 147 million troy ounces of gold bullion, which is half of the Department of Treasury's stored gold. And in case you're curious, I checked it out. 
Current price for gold today is $1,765 per ounce. It has 147 million ounces of gold bricks in there, which is about a quarter trillion dollars. Okay? <laughs> Say again, please. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, okay, you can turn the lights back up, Oz. Thanks. Um, your faith is more precious than gold. Your faith in Jesus Christ, who gives eternal life, something a gold brick can never do, is more precious than gold that perishes. Paul's concern for the Christians in Colossae is that they were not taking advantage of the hidden treasure, and he's going to use that word today, which caused me to bring this slide up, that they have free refills. <laughs> you have unlimited access to the vault of the glory of Christ and all that that means to us. And so the Christians in Colossae were being distracted by inferior promise, by fool's gold, which is nothing but iron and is worthless. But it appears like it has high value, and they were being distracted by that. Look, you and I understand what being distracted, what that means, right? When you're having a conversation with somebody, and you're pouring out your heart to them, and all of a sudden they look down at their phone. It's like, that sucks. <laughs> What am I, nothing? Right? And I think sort of that's sort of the same, same thing that Paul is, that's why he's writing. He's like, you're being distracted away from the glory of Christ. And these arguments that, are, that they're hearing, they sound impressive, but it's fool's gold. And so that's the reason that he writes the way he does. We come to chapter 2, and let's pick it up at verse 1. And I'll read down through verse 10. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing and seeing your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you of your phil through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Father, we have need of encouragement from your spirit today. And you have given us words that are not only for this church, but for the church, for us here today. And so, Lord, with our hearts open and our minds prepared, fill us, Lord. 
be glorious to us. I pray we would worship you again in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, really just attack the first seven verses with you this morning. And the way the Lord has given this for us to consider is this way. Four things. Verse 1, we see love prays. Paul gets personal here in these verses. He's already done that. Verse 24, he talked about rejoicing in the sufferings that he was experiencing on their behalf, for their benefit, for their encouragement. I'm taking a hit, and I want you to see that Jesus fills me up even in spite of all that's going on, and he's using that to encourage them. He continues now in a personal way, and he really, and he talks about his prayer, and we'll talk about that. Love prays. And then from there, I see they come in, in, in pairs. Verses 2 and 3 kind of come together. It's, it's Paul's purpose for praying, and he basically says, love promotes more love. Love prays and love promotes. Obviously, I'm alliterating. And then verses 4 and 5, love protects. He's writing this so that they will be protected so that they'll be secure in their relationship. And then finally, love perseveres. As Paul would say to them, so walk in him. By the way, the word walk there, it's the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, in this letter that he actually gives an imperative. It's the first time that we're instructed to do anything. <clears throat> He's going to build on that as we get to chapter 3 for sure. But first, love prays. Paul says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, neighboring city, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, I want to consider this with you for a moment because it's really quite a statement that Paul is making here. He's saying, I have conflict. And it's a word that was common in the vernacular of that day when people would say, I want to go watch the game. They would use this word conflict. It was the place where the, it was referred to the stadium or the Coliseum where the Islanders won a great game last night. Or where the contest was held, the track meet, right? That was where, but in that place, there was a competition, there was a striving for superiority to cross the line. And Paul is using that word in a personal way, and he's telling these people who he's never seen. He's never seen them. They don't know what he looks like. They've never heard his voice. He's never looked them in the eye and shaken their hand and said, hey, how you doing? I'm Paul. What's your name? Right? Never seen these people. And yet he's saying to them, I have this intense competition, I have this intense conflict 
in, and I believe it's in prayer. I think conflict could refer to a couple of things. It could refer to the fact that Paul is frustrated that he's in chains in a Roman prison cell and he can't go to Colossae and actually hang out with those brethren and just give them some gospel. As he said to the church in Rome, I can't wait to get to you because I want to impart some spiritual gift on you that will establish you in your walk even after I'm gone. So I think maybe there was a personal frustration in the fact that Paul is submitted to the Lord's will. He's like, okay, I'm in a prison cell, not what I would have chosen, but it's what God has allowed and he's called for me to do, so I'm accepting that. And Maybe I can't come and see you, but I will pray for you. Love prays. Like, come on, man. He's never seen these people. Never. He's just heard about them from his friend Epaphras. Really, Paul? And you're, and you're going into what he would describe as a, a sweaty sort of a wrestling match with God on their behalf. This word conflict. For people you don't even know, why would you do that, Paul? Because he loves Jesus and he loves the body of Christ. That's why. Because love prays for them. Because of God's intense love poured into Paul's life, And Paul living in in that love, keeping himself there, he loves what Jesus has done in the lives of people he's never even seen yet. He'll see them in heaven. In fact, he's already with them now. It's the same word, brothers and sisters, where Paul would write to Timothy and he had said, I have fought a good fight. It's that word. I've fought a good fight. I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. Paul liked to talk in sort of athletic uh, analogy, right? It's the same word, conflict. Uh, We get our word agony out of the Greek, right? Jesus, being in agony, same word. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was Paul. Imagine you come to church and here's the pastor stands up and they give him they hand him a scroll and he opens it up. It's a handwritten letter from the Apostle Paul from Rome. And we come to chapter two and we find out this guy, this apostle that we've heard about, is over in Rome and he's praying for me. And he's praying for me. How encouraging that is. Pray for one another, brothers. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. Now, as I said, I think the word could possibly be that Paul is just struggling with waiting on God's will for the release from prison, and we believe he was released and then sent back again. But perhaps once that release came, he's like, I got to get to Colossae. I want to see these brethren that I've heard so much about, that I prayed for. But I think it could also mean that prayer is hard. I think it very much could mean that. That prayer is a difficult, challenging work. All right? Doubts and distractions and discouragements and the devil all come in and try to hinder our times of prayer. To illustrate that with you this morning... (laughs) I have, um, I have a book uh, called Disciplines of a Godly Man, Kent Hughes. Great book. Recommend it, men. If you don't have it, get it. 
Uh, but in there, he talks about the discipline of prayer, and he gives an example from a man who lived years ago. His name is Sidlow, how do you like that name? Baxter, J. Sidlow Baxter. And it says, he was once shared a page from his own pastoral diary with a group of pastors who had inquired about the discipline of prayer. He began by telling how he entered the ministry determined to be a real man of prayer. Now, as I read this, I just want you to know, I think this, his words are applicable to anybody. It's not just those in ministry, as you'll, you'll connect. He says, however, it was not long before his increasing responsibilities and duties and the subtle subterfuges of life began to crowd prayer out. Moreover, he began to get used to it, making excuses for himself. Then one morning, it all came to a head as he stood over his work-strewn desk and looked at his watch. The voice of the Spirit was calling him to pray. At the same time, another velvety little voice was telling him to be practical and get his letters answered, and that he ought to face up to the fact that he was not one of the spiritual giants. Only a few people could be like that. That last remark, said Baxter, hurt like a dagger. I could not bear to think it was true. He was horrified by his ability to rationalize away the very ground of his vitality and power. That morning, Sidlow Baxter took a good look into his heart and found there was a part of him which did not want to pray and part which did. The part which did not was his emotions. The part which did was his intellect and his will. This analysis paved the way to victory. And in Dr. Baxter's own words, he says this, As never before, my will and I stood face to face. I asked my will the straight question, Will, are you ready for an hour of prayer? Will answered, Here I am, and I'm quite ready, if you are. So, Will and I linked arms and turned to go for our time of prayer. At once, all the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting. We're not coming. I saw Will stagger just a bit. So I asked, can you stick it out, Will? And Will replied, yes, if you can. So Will and we got down to prayer, dragging those wriggling emotions with us. It was a struggle all the way through. At one point, when Will and I were in the middle of an earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of those traitorous emotions had snared my imagination and then run off to the golf course. Aha, you're laughing because you understand. <laughs> and it was all I could do to drag that wicked rascal back. A bit later, I found another of the emotions that sneaked away with some off-guard thoughts. And it was in the pulpit. And I was in the pulpit two days ahead of schedule preaching a sermon I hadn't even finished yet. At the end of that hour, if you had asked me, have you had a good time? I would have had to reply, no. It's been a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and truant imagination from beginning to end. What is more, that battle with the emotions continued for between two and three weeks. And if you had asked me at the end of that period, have you had a good time in your daily praying, I would have had to confess, no, at times it has seemed as though the heavens were brass and God too distant to hear, and the Lord Jesus strangely aloof and prayer accomplished nothing. Yet, something was happening. For one thing, Will and I taught the emotions that we were completely independent of them. Did you catch that? In other words, he disciplined his mind. Something we all need to do. Something Paul is wanting the church in Colossae to do. 
Will and I taught the emotions that, they were that we were completely independent of them. Also one morning, about two weeks after the contest began, just when Will and I were going for another time of prayer, I overheard one of the emotions whisper to the other, come on, you guys, it's no use wasting any more time resisting. They'll go just the same. That morning, for the first time, even though the emotions were still suddenly un uncooperative, they were at least quiet, which allowed Will and me to get on with prayer undistractedly. Then, another couple of weeks later, what do you think happened? During one of our prayer times, when Will and I were no more thinking of the emotions than of the man in the moon, one of the most vigorous of emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, Hallelujah! At which all the other emotions exclaimed, Amen! And the first time, and for the first time, the whole thing, my whole being, intellect, will, and emotions were united in one coordinated prayer operation. <laughs> Love praise. And Paul, very honestly, he just says, I have a great agony. I'm in agony for you. Perhaps it could just be Paul expressing very honestly that prayer is hard, but prayer for others because of God's love for us is what caused Paul to persevere. Love praise. I have a question. When's the last time you gave 30 seconds of thought or concern for a Christian you've never met, shook their hand, looked in the eye, and had face-to-face -face conversation? You've heard about them. When's the last time you actually gave an extended period of wrestling in prayer for the church, the universal church, for Christians living in North Korea, in France? It's hard to be a Christian in France, Western world. How about for Christians in the Bible Belt in America or in Myanmar? Am I saying that right? Nepal, Haiti. Go around the globe. When's the last time? Love praise. Paul loved the church and he prayed for the church. So brothers and sisters, do you know that Jesus prayed for you? Before he died on the cross, in his prayer in John 17, verse 20, he said, Father, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, speaking of the apostles preaching of the gospel. He prayed for you. He prayed for me. He prayed for anybody who's ever become a Christian. Just one big eternal prayer from the eternal Son of God for the church until he returns. So love praise. <laughs> right? I think sometimes, I'll just be very honest with you, that uh, I think sometimes our prayer is more of like an anger management system or a stress relief. Nothing more than just punching my pillow, <laughs> right? I'm just pouring out all my garbage before God. And we forget, or we might forget, that I'm actually interacting with the living Son of God. I have full access to the throne of grace, 
There's no ribbon wire, razor wire, and monitors and all this stuff. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And, and really, I take a lesson from the woman in the Gospels who had an issue of blood, is the King James way of saying it. And I'll just read this account to you in Mark chapter 5. There was a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. That's a beautiful example of somebody with a desperate need praying to Jesus. Immediately, it says... um, She touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? Are you serious right now, Jesus? Hundreds of people are touching you. But somebody touched him by faith. Love prays in faith. And faith pleases God. And and God answers our prayer. And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So just remember, brothers and sisters, when you and I are walking through our day and we're praying, because we pray without ceasing. I think you pray a lot more than you realize you pray, right? You're just in constant conversation, this ongoing dialogue that we have with our Savior, right? That He's hearing every word. He's hearing every word. For Paul, I think he's a real man like you and I, and perhaps it were the distractions, perhaps it was the doubts or the discouragement that said, why bother? There was a great conflict. There was an agonizing in Paul's life, but he was doing it because love prays. We move now to verses 2 and 3, and he tells us what the purpose of his prayer was. Interesting. That their hearts... I love that word, their. (laughs) He's writing to a real church in Colossae, and he recognizes them, and this other church named in Laodicea, these people that had never seen him, but he says, he's writing to this church, and he says that their hearts, that tells me that Paul's prayer is wider, bigger than just for them. He doesn't say, your hearts, you who are hearing this message, this letter that I've written, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's that word mystery again. (laughs) Right? Whenever we read the word mystery in our church, we clap our hands because something's been revealed. Right? Mystery is not a... It's something previously known, and now it's made known. The point of Paul's prayer is that love begets love. Okay? It promotes more love. The way that's really written in verse 2, he says that your hearts may be encouraged. Your Bible might say, and knit together. 
But it's actually not proper. It's what he's saying is your hearts would be encouraged because you, because of, not and as this is a separate thing, it's because your hearts have been knit together in love. Because Jesus has created a living, organic church made up of people that, and those people that are promoting love as they love one another. Are you getting this with me? I hope I'm making it clear. I think Paul is basically saying, put love to the test. Try it. You'll like it. Right? Paul makes the astounding claim here, in other words, in verse 2, that greater revelation and knowledge of God will come from loving one another. Isn't that interesting? And you know that is true. You absolutely know it on both sides of the coin where you have been the recipient or you have been the giver. Had it happened just very notably to me about a week ago where an expression of love was, happened, came my way, and it, was, it took me a bit by surprise. And I'm like, that is amazing. <laughs> that this person is actually taking great delight in the fact that they can do something on my behalf or for me. And I was like, that is so beautiful. Only Jesus could do something that is so Christ-like. Or when you've been on the other side of that and you know it's more blessed to give than to receive, you know that, right? When we have taken, extended ourselves, time, energy, or money, and we've done something for the sake of another, it's such a beautiful thing and you know you're in the will of God. And Paul's like, keep it going, people. Love promotes love. That's my prayer for you, that you will stay together and continue to love one another. Life is hard. It's going to happen. Jesus taught that very clearly in his upper room experience just prior to the Passover or at the Passover. Remember, he washed the disciples' feet which was nothing more than just a living illustration of, I forgive you. I'm going to wash you from your sin. I'm going to justify you by faith. And he gets all down, he gets all done washing everybody's feet, and he sits down and he says, now, you call me Lord and Master, and you say, well, because I am. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, forgive each other. And then he says, what's he say? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's the joy. We will actually experience a grace, a Christian, a grace of Christ working, encouraging us, and we'll come to greater revelation. Paul took a direct swipe at the philosophers in Colossae by saying that. Oh, they're, they're making these profound arguments that we are an exclusive group. We are academia. That's what they thought. I'm not taking a swipe at academia. Some of you were in academia. Praise the Lord. But greater understanding and knowledge of God, you know what? It happens through your love and your loving for one another. You're forgiving and being forgiven of one another. And he, he, just, he just plainly says, the mystery of God which is in Christ. What is the mystery of God in Christ? I think F.F. F. Bruce says it as simply as can be. The mystery of God's loving purposes as disclosed in Christ alone. Who is God? What's he like? Look to Jesus. 
You've seen me. You've seen the Father, Philip. Really? Do we need to go over this again? <laughs> right? John 14. Show us the Father. I've shown you the Father. I have not held back anything from you. You've seen me in all of my character and my emotions and everything, that my purpose and meaning in life. I'm here to give my life as a ransom. This is the Father. He loves you. He loves sinners. Christ died for the ungodly Romans. Right? It's like, this is, this is the mystery of God revealed in Christ. The loving purposes of God are revealed in Jesus. That's the mystery. Do you see the theme of Colossae, Colossians, Colossians coming out? Paul's like, it's the glory of Christ. You're hearing, you got these talking heads in your ears and they sound very persuasive. Can't really refute some of their arguments. They've got scientific backing and all these other philosophical reasonings that I just can't figure them out. I'm, I don't know that I have a reply. Paul's like, I get that. You have Fort Knox. <laughs> What's the problem? You have access. The door's open. The veil's torn. Come in. You have the glory of Christ. And I get it. I get why Paul would say this. He, he, he knows we gotta, you got to stay together, brethren. you got to stay together. Love promotes love. And he goes on, verse 4 and 5. Now I say this. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing and seeing your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. My goodness, Paul writes as though he's present, doesn't he? I mean, it sounds like he's in the room with them. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing your good order and your steadfastness. I'm seeing the fact that you are, that you're linked together, shoulder to shoulder, and that you're working through your life together and, and it's life together in Colossae. I see that. I'm absent, but I'm with you in spirit. So love prays and promotes and love protects. I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Right? So what was happening is there was people who had mystery religions they had all these sort of credentialing and reputation and they were getting into the ears of the people and they were, there was some sound reasoning in some of their arguments. But you see, <laughs> the allure from over here is really to their pride. It's really to their pride. And I get why Paul wants the church to stay together. Because once pride, once that fire gets lit, and it's like, I can move over here and I can get to a higher understanding and knowledge than, really? <laughs> it's faith in Jesus? I'm going to believe in a Jewish Messiah who died a couple thousand years ago? And yet we're talking about all sorts of theoretical things over here? Once that fire gets lit, it's hard, man. It causes separation and division. That's what happens. 1 Corinthians 8.2 Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Right? Love protects. 
I think one of the great examples of that is uh, Nehemiah in the Old Testament. God used this man, Nehemiah, to help the Jews rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And there was a great conflict in getting that job done. But Nehemiah was an amazing leader. And he was able to uh, just encourage and basically, it really wasn't about the wall, it was about the people. And when Nehemiah shows up in Israel, he just motivates and gets the people all stirred up to do the work of God and to rebuild their city walls. And so men, women, and children, people who had never handled a trowel in their life are suddenly out there putting big stones together. And you guys in the construction field like, that ain't going to go well. (laughs) That's okay. Nehemiah's on site. And he's getting constantly being conflict. I think one of the biggest contests that came to him came to him personally. In Nehemiah chapter 6, his enemies said to him, come, let us meet together. How about it, Nehemiah? You, come on out here. We'll just sit down and we'll talk. Right? That was their ploy. You see, if I can separate you from the group and get you out here alone then the thing's going to fall apart. That was Nehemiah's temptation and his reply. I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So love promotes and love protects. Keep loving one another, brothers and sisters. For though I'm absent in the flesh, that's why we're having the church picnic. Like, we had a meeting a couple weeks ago, and we're like, dude, we got to spend more time together. Like, I think COVID's over, or it's close to over, and, you know, we're all vaccinated, and um, so let's just eat. Let's spend some time, hang out, and really invest in deeper in each other's lives and strengthen our bonds and our relationships. Um, for some of you that are going to be here only a little bit short, long time, then please come. Finally, verses 6 and 7, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As I said before, walk in Him. It's the first imperative in this whole book, in this whole letter. Walk in Him. And, you know, oftentimes in Paul's words, that means it's your manner of life. Live a life that's worthy of Him. I don't think that's his emphasis here. I think it's more continue in Him. Can we just be like Jesus said, abide in the vine? I think that's what Paul's saying. Live in constant and eternal dependence on the one who will always provide everything you need. He'll provide everything you need. I'm the vine. No, no, no. Actually, I'm the true vine. There's a lot of people who say, but it's fool's gold. I'm the true vine. You attach yourself, and I will constantly give you everything that you need. Your life will be good, actually. I read a little quote from C.S. Lewis who Just a month before he died, he got a letter from a young girl who said that she had read all of his books and really appreciated him. And I loved his reply. He said, thank you very much for writing. And by the way, your writing was very well done. And just keep loving Jesus. I promise it will go well with you for the rest of your life. That was a great word. Thank you, C.S. Lewis, who has said a lot of really good things. But that's as profound as it gets. You've got access to the glory of Christ. If you love me, 
the love of the Father is in you. I in them, thou in me, we in them. We will make our home in you by our spirit. Love perseveres is what 6 and 7 is basically saying to us. As you have received the Lord, walk in Him. Well, there's a condition. How have you received the Lord? I would say two things. And I go to Paul's testimony himself. He received God's love and he received Him as Lord. If you think about Paul on the road to Damascus, he got caught red-handed. He's got blood on his hands. Jesus called him out. He goes, I'm not going to judge you, bro. I forgive you. That's love. That's unmerited favor, grace. And Paul's response on that day of his conversion, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now that's lordship. As you have received him, his love and his lordship continue in that. It's a walk of humility and dependence on the Lord himself. And then finally, Paul would say, and have been taught, uh, rooted, uh, having been rooted and built up, he uses a couple of analogies there in verse 7, rooted and built up in him, rooted more of a, a planting kind of a thing. If you're thinking of the parable of the sower, that's good, right? That soil, that heart that was conditioned to receive God's grace, that seed took root down in there and it produced fruit, Right? So you've been rooted, you have been rooted, and you are being built up. He's using the analogy of a building here. In him and established in the faith and have been taught abounding with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving. All right? I'll, I'll say this. It's hard. It might even be impossible to take somebody and steer them away from the faith if they're constantly giving thanks to Jesus. It might be impossible. Because if I'm living a life that is abounding in thanksgiving, oh, thank you, Jesus, so much. In fact, when I kiss this world goodbye, I will enter into your presence and I will ever be with you, Lord, without ever the threat of any of my sins being held against me because you took care of it on the cross. What a deal. (laughs) Continue in that. Love perseveres. I think one of the great stories in the, in the Gospels are the ten lepers. Remember that story in Luke 17? Ten guys all had leprosy, hung out together. With, didn't wear a mask. <laughs> Am I mocking COVID right now? <laughs> anyway, they all got leprosy. <laughs> and nobody could go near them (laughs) because droplets and you get it I'm not mocking COVID now it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem that he passed through Samaria and as he entered a certain village there met him ten men who were lepers and they stood afar off that's where they had to stand can't get near but they lifted their voice they prayed and they said Jesus master have mercy on him on us sorry so he saw them and he said, go your, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was, as they went away, they were cleansed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> One of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And Jesus said, where's the other nine? 
<laughs> he said, go your way, your faith has made you well. Abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. Love praise. Prayer's hard. Persevere in prayer. Pray for the church. Pray for the pastors of the churches. <laughs> Pray for your, each other. Intercession is amazing. Join us Wednesday night. We pray at 6.30. It's easy. All you got to do is click and you're in. We're not asking you to come here anymore. It's easy. I actually like it. You don't have to video, right? We turn our videos off, but we pray together. It's really easy. We try to do it for an hour, right? 6.30 to 7.30. Weekly prayer Wednesday nights. You can get in through the website. Love prays, right? Love promotes love. Love protects as we stay together. And love perseveres. Let's stand and pray. Well, as often is the case, Lord, when, when challenges to our faith come, it causes us to dig into the Word, to talk together, to pray together, to think together, to see if these things are true. Will the gospel hold up to the many challenges that are coming against it today? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because it's absolute truth. Those challenges get more intense, more persuasive, and media seems to make it louder and bigger. It can be overwhelming. So I thank you for Paul's encouragement to the church today, Lord, that he loves us and he's prayed for us. I thank you for the, the truth. Hopefully we'll take this with us as we go back out and live for you and witness for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.